everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and today I have with me my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Payne. Hello. Hi, Steph. Hi, Jeff. Lovely to be here again. Yes, you. it's been a while since you've been on it the show. It has been, yeah. Um, so I pulled you into the recording studio here, our very professional recording studio, <laughs> um, to talk to you about Keats. Yes. And the reason that I wanted to talk to you about Keats is because it's the year 2019 and the year 1819, which was exactly 200 years ago, I believe. You're good at maths. Um, yes, I am very good at maths. Um, that was a very special year for Keats, which we will come to shortly. Mm. Um, but first of all, who was Keats and why is he important? Well, there's a simple and there's a complex answer good. to that question, Steph, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of both. Excellent. Um, <laughs> hopefully not bore you too much, but the simple no, no. answer, answer of course, <laughs> is that Keats is one of the best-known and best-loved poets in the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, he is affiliated with the period of Romanticism in British literature, which gives us a predominance of major figures that we... Um, that we kind of understand to give birth to poetry in its more modern sense. And though the, the big six of the canon of romantic poets um, are in the older generation, Wordsworth, Coleridge, and William Blake, who's kind of a, a more peripheral figure, but still very significant. And then amongst the younger generation, there's Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and of course, John Keats. John Keats is the youngest of those major poets. Um, and uh, in a way, he's the most surprising of those poets because of all of the odds that stacked up against him in becoming a poet. Um, as with all of the younger generation of romantic big six poets, um, Keats died very young. He was the youngest at, at the time. It's of important death. to die young. He was, pretty, yeah. Yes, he was the. <laughs> last to be born and the first to die. So he was born in 1795 and died in 1821 of tuberculosis. Very Um, romantic disease. Very romantic disease. (laughs) Um, To think about, probably not to have. Yes, no, but there was a a, a kind of discourse of the, the, you know, beautiful tuberculosis victim because it made you, you know, artistically pale. Yes, (laughs) pale, thin. Yes. Um, frail, language. ethereal. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so fits in a lot of ways one of the ways mm-hmm. in which Keats has been characterised in later generation. And this kind of moves us into, I suppose, the more complex answer that we might give. So over the time since Keats' death, he died very in a very obscure circumstances. Um, he had a couple of po- um, volumes of poems published, but they were not well-received critically. In fact, um, they were savagely attacked in the press. And we'll go into the reasons behind that savage Mm -hmm. attack um, when we talk about the more complicated um, poet. Um, But he died in relatively obscurity. He had moved to Italy um, to try and alleviate um, the the symptoms of the tuberculosis by a change into a more warmer climb. That didn't really work. No. Um, and he died in poverty um, in a garret um, in Rome in, in 1821. So he had no poetic reputation. He had no real literary champions. His main literary champion in England was Percy Shelley, who himself was anathema. Yes. Um, he was an atheist, a radical, 
um, an adulterer, a get about, a, get about, <laughs> um, a libertine, yeah. all rolled into one, everything that the establishment despised. And it was really only in the middle of the 19th century, um, through the pre-Raphaelites, mm-hmm. that Keats really started to gain prominence um, as a poet. And he was championed as a poet who reinvigorated an English tradition of poetry mm-hmm. as opposed to a more classical tradition of poetry that was by the pre-Raphaelites he championed deemed to be corrupt and corruptive. And also he was the one romantic poet in this view who had managed to create the ideal poetry that avoided what had been termed the egotistical sublime. Right. It was the, the, the characteristic of the Wordsworthian form of Romanticism and the Byronic forms of Romanticism. These are two poets who, although diametrically opposed, were by critics roundly viewed to be seen to be just writing about themselves right. all the time. Themselves and Keats didn't do that. Keats, according to this version of things, didn't do that. He takes the poet out of the equation mm-hmm. and instead writes abstract, pure poetry, mm-hmm. which celebrates aesthetic beauty mm-hmm. in and of its own um uh, in and of itself, it, it, it comes to epitomise the beginnings of this movement to the art for art's sake yeah. that rises out of the mid-century aesthetic. And this view of Keats dominates through the, 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 the latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th century and really predominates through critical discussions for the majority of the 20th century. And it's only towards the end of the 20th century um, with um, more politically interested criticism um, through figures such as Jerome McGann, that we start getting a different type of Keats emerging. And this Keats is not the Keats who is thoroughly disconnected from the world. The Keats who is so ethereal that as Byron characterised it, was snuffed out by an article. Byron had this idea that the, the negative review of Keats had been the thing that killed him. Yeah. Um, due to a report, partly, that Shelley, Shelley gave him of Keats's situation, that he was so mortally wounded that he literally died that yeah. he literally died yeah um and instead we get a keats who is a far more rounded figure a keats who is very strongly connected um first of all to his lower middle class working middle class roots because he's a doctor right Right, mm. he is, well, a surgeon. Yeah, which or is an not apprentice surgeon. Which is not a you know, surgeon has a very different social valence than it did. That's right. Yeah. So in the the medical establishment of the day, the three different levels mm. of medicine were um, the physicians, who were the gentlemen doctors, mm. um, who had attended the College of Physicians, and so therefore very learned and respectable people. Mm. There were apothecaries who were below the physicians because they were essentially tradesmen. They were the people who were responsible for the the mixing of chemicals into drugs and Mm. mixing up the various tinctures that were used to treat um, disease during the period. And then the surgeons were... Butchers. Butchers. They were affiliated (laughs) with the the, the college of... Not the college, the... the, um, 
Institute, Institute, whatever it was. I'm scrabbling for the term. The company, the company, the company yeah. of butchers yeah. and barbers. Um, Skin and knife, you know. Lobbing bits of meat Cut away of things, yeah. <laughs> um, doing exactly, essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were roundly deemed to be little more than butchers. That mm-hmm. was kind of the, the, the way that surgeons at the time were thought. What a, what a shift to a gentlemanly profession. Yeah. Um, it's still why, of course, surgeons are still called Mr. Mr. rather than doctor. doctor yeah. it's, a, it's a kind of a hangover from that, um, mm. the origins of the, the surgeon. And now it becomes a, a, a kind of a, there's a sense of pride attached yeah. to, to that, um, uh, that, that, that position. Um, but in Keats's day, he was apprenticed. Um, he, he was, so his father was a livery stableman. His mother was the daughter of a publican. Mm-hmm. Um, there was not a lot of money, and what money there was became tied up in legal dispute because Keats' parents both died when the Keats children were relatively young. Um, their guardians looked to exploit them as much as they could for cash, um, and so they, the Keats children, by and large, were left to shift for themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. Keats was signed up as an apprentice surgeon, um, which he stuck at for a couple of years, but at the same time, he was making excursions into the realms of poetry. But he was a he was a working man. He was a working class, um, you know, jobbing, dependent on labour man. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's that aspect of Keats starts to be promoted, um, and also. The Keats that has come to light in the more recent critical view that shifts the attention to romantic sociability. Yes. And so rather than thinking about the dying, solitary genius in the garret, Mm. thinks about the poet in relation to the ways in which he connects to various different other artistic movements, but also to the world more broadly. So it's not only, of course, um, Keats' connection to his working class, mm-hmm. middle class roots, but also to his affiliation with Lee Hunt mm-hmm. and with the school of poets that and and politically minded figures that surrounded him. Okay, so can you tell us more about this group of romantic peeps that were around Lee Hunt? <clears throat> Sure. So the other thing I suppose that we might just take a little time yeah. to acknowledge is the period when Keats is writing. is a period of mm. a combination of political unrest and, and growing stability which is bordering on tyrannical government. Mm-hmm. As many people will know, in the set in 1789 the french revolution happened happened yes and the results the ramifications of the french revolution play out very strongly across europe mm-hmm. for the next 20 to 30 years mm-hmm. um by the time keats is reaching his adulthood um the french revolution has given way to Napoleonic government. And there are different ways of viewing what Napoleon is doing. For the establishment in England, Napoleon is a convenient 
um, scapegoat to demonstrate the failure of the revolution's egalitarian principles. This is what happens yeah. if you let democratic forms of government come in, tyrants emerge, they seek to conquer all of Europe, and, um, and chaos ensues. The other way of looking at Napoleon is more complicated. They see large parts of what Napoleon does as being ill. At the same time, they see it as the natural necessary result, the military sword arm of democracy, um, ridding the world of the last vestiges of old tyrannical forms of government. They see Napoleon's form of empire as being still essentially democratic and engendering a lot of the reforms that they felt needed to take place at home in Britain, for instance. Um, in particular, the revolution in the military, where Napoleon's generals were promoted on the grounds of merit rather than on the grounds of money or class became a real thorny issue. Mm. Now, this is where the Hunts come in. Yep. Because the Hunts begin their career, so there's Lee and John Hunt, who are two um, politically-minded, artistic figures. Neither of them are particularly good no. <laughs> um, as poets or as writers, but they are very good at galvanising people, and they're also very good at... Um, at mobilising sentiment. And so they begin a paper called The Examiner. And The Examiner's um, uh, typical of the journals of the day mixes together all different kinds of discourse. There's poetry, there's prose, but, uh, prose stories, but there's also a lot of political, scientific writing, essays, reviews, those kinds of things, all mixed together, but all with a radical bent. Mm -hmm. And the Hunts in particular come to the attention of the establishment because they start writing articles in criticism of the British establishment and particularly the corruption in the military. They write articles um, about the practice of flogging um, soldiers for very um, poor crime, for very small minor misdemeanours. Mm -hmm. They write articles um, about the corrupt system of promotions that exists in the British military. And in, with the publication of each of these articles, they are brought to trial for seditious libel and treason. Now, in neither of those cases are they successfully prosecuted. And it's only in 1812, I think it is, when the Hunts publish an article which is scathing of the Prince Regent, um, who they very correctly point he'd been described in one of the, the main papers as a kind of Adonis. No. And <laughs> they pointed out that he was 50, corpulent, morally corrupt, an enemy of marriage, an enemy of everything um, that the British prize, and that he's done nothing in the course of his 50 years to warrant the thanks or attention of any of the people. Now, this is the thing that actually gets them into serious trouble. They are found guilty of seditious libel and they are sent to prison. Now, you know, that has, in the end, very little effect. Lee Hunt continues to edit his newspaper from prison. He has lots of um, admirers and well-wishers come to visit him while he's in prison, and he continues to promote the kinds of programs that he promotes. 
Keats at the time is a schoolboy, um, nearing the end of his education at Clark's Dissenting Academy in Enfield. Because he doesn't have money or connections or positions, he can't go to one of the public schools that all of the other big romantic poets went to. Um, he receives, however, at this academy, a very useful education for him as a poet because it introduces him to writers who can't be taught in the in the mainstream system. Milton, in the time, was still not able to be taught in the public schools and universities because of his politics and because mm. of his radicalism. Because Keats is attending a dissenting school, he's able to be exposed to writers like Milton or like Priestley who are not considered to be... Um, who are kind of beyond the pale for the establishment. And he's also introduced to the writings of Lee Hunt by his schoolmaster, Charles Gardner Clark. Um, he's introduced to the examiner. And the first poem that, that Keats actually writes is a sonnet um, on the occasion of Hunt's release from prison. So his poetic career, right from the word go, is very tied in to his very... It's not unique, but his very different worldview that he brings to the table in contrast to the other major figures. One of the problems, of, I suppose, that, 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 that people have identified of the way in which the Romantic period was um, studied throughout the 20th century was the fact that there was this real strong focus on the so-called Big Six, which championed certain views of what poetry of the period was and did, and therefore caused the canonization of certain parts of poets' oeuvres, mm. and then papered over other significant aspects as well. And, and for Keats in particular, this was a really strong thing. So the focus on Keats the Romantic Genius asked for a focus on his formal poetic experiments, and particularly the great odes that he produced. Yes. Um, and it, at the same time, caused people to look past or to try to write excuses for his other kinds of poetry, his more politically motivated poetry, um, his rival risque poetry, um, and also um, his gothic Yes. poetry, which is another sort of significant strand of what he does. So Keats is, all, is, is both of the Keats at once. He does, he is a very serious um, poet. He really thinks deeply and complexly about what poetry should be. He experiments formally. He looks at what other artists are doing in his day and tries to not only emulate them, but go beyond them, to do things better than they've been able to do. And Wordsworth is a particular influence in this regard. Um, of all of the younger generation of, po of, of um, poets, Keats probably stays steadfast to Wordsworth as an artist far more ardently than certainly Byron. Byron despise Wordsworth. He called him Turdsworth. Turdsworth yeah. was Byron's label for Wordsworth. <laughs> Sorry, I love that. Shelley yeah. um, admired Wordsworth's early radical verse, mm -hmm. but thoroughly discounted his later verses, particularly once he'd 
um, turn, you know, he, uh, he'd become a turncoat, yeah. he'd become mm-hmm. conservative, he'd taken a, a government pension, yeah. well, not a pension, a, a position, the, the, the collector and minister of stamps in mm-hmm. the uh, Westmoreland district, um, which therefore put him in the pay of the powers that be. And so they viewed Wordsworth as this political turncoat. Keats, whilst he does um, decry Wordsworth's political turn, remains focused on Wordsworth the artist and the experimenter in poetic form. And his poetry kind of attempts to solve some of the problems that Keats identifies Mm. in um, the Wordsworthian view of the world, and particularly this idea of the egotistical sublime. That's something that Keats really kind of picks up and tries to do something with. And this is part of the reason why he, he becomes a convenient figure to focus this turn towards the aesthetic. Right. And the, okay, so I think now that's a nice segue into mm. 1819. Yes. Um, so why was 1819 such a big year in terms of the development of Keats as a poet? Okay. So Keats as a poet um, began very rapidly to produce poetry. He's very Um, young. He's very young. He's Mm. a very young man. He's born in 1795, Mm. and by 1817, when he's at the age of 22, he publishes his first major collection of poems. Um, This is a a book of poetry that concentrates predominantly on the endymion, and collects together a number of smaller poems that have been kind of artfully collected to support what otherwise would be a very slender and substantial volume. Endymion is never really quite finished, as with much of Keats's work, he kind of gets a first flush of excitement and then can't really bored. <laughs> gets bored with it or yeah. can't really work out yeah. what to do with it. Um, following the publication. In 1817, Keats is resoundingly attacked in the press, predominantly by the Blackwoods Edinburgh magazine, the reviewer Zed, who publishes a diatribe on the Cockney School of Poetry. Very class classist. Very classist. Mm. Predominantly, the review is in fact an attack on Lee Hunt. Right. That is the main target. But because By association. because Keats has been brought to prominence by Hunt, he is published in the Examiner. Mm. Um, his works are published alongside poems by Shelley, mm-hmm. for instance, and other radical figures. He is seen as a convenient figure against whom one can direct um, one vitriol. Do we know who that Zed was? We do. Mm-hmm. The surname is Lincoln. I think it's John Lincoln. Right. Um, and he's not a very major figure. No, I was thinking, is he um, major? Yeah, no. He's, yeah. Not, he's not one of the major um, reviewers of the period, but this review mm. um, was probably his tour de force. Well, and it's in such a prominent magazine. It's in a prominent mm. magazine, a very right-wing, yeah. conservative journal coming out of Scotland. Mm. Um, and its goal is to quash the radical politics mm. Um it offers a kind of defence of the Lake School of Poets, which includes Coleridge and Wordsworth, as well as Robert Southey, who has just recently been made the Poet Laureate. 
um, in what is seen to be, you know, again, another radical act of turncoatism on Southie's part. Southie in the early um, 1790s had written a very radical play, Watt Tyler, in support of the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so to all of a sudden to take up this government position of poet laureate, which was paid and so therefore seen to be political, you know, becoming a political mouthpiece. And you've got was to write like poems on like the monarch's birthday. Right. This. Yeah. 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 Um, so Zed is defending the Lakers against the attacks from the radicals on their political apostasy. apostasy. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, they um, are very strongly coming down on what they see as the vulgarism of this Cockney school of poetry. Now, Cockney, of course, is a derogatory term used by the upper classes to signify those living in the East End of London, within the sound of Bow Bells is the official, official, official definition, um, and predominantly consisted of poor working class people. Um, they Zed argues that the only good poets in English history have been country gentlemen who are attuned to the sounds of nature because of their country seats. Um, and that the poetry produced by the Cockney School is essentially only cognizant of nature insofar as it consists of the window box in their house or the fruit and vegetable that they're selling at their grocery store. And Keats himself, <laughs> yeah. he directs to go back to his apothecary career, um, dying as a starving apothecary is better than dying as a starving poet because he puts little Mr. John should go back to his shop. Um, he is particularly snippy about the fact that Keats doesn't speak Greek. How dare you? Um, that he only knows his Homer and his classics in translation, so therefore cannot have a proper affinity with the great works of the classical world. <laughs> um, and the, the uh, criticisms that are mounted against Keats are largely of this type. Yeah. Keats, however, he is able to, when he reads the review, he is um, affected by the negative flavour of reviews. But he's also able to put aside those elements of the review that are um, purely mobilised by personal or political attack mm. and instead to focus in on what valid criticisms of his poetry emerged from the review process. And in response to that, he sets out to redefine himself as a poet. He starts thinking far more specifically about what he wants to do in terms of poetry, about the kinds of experimentation that he wants to do. And it all of a sudden clicks at the end of 1818. And in 1819, he writes what are considered to be pretty much all of his great works of poetry. They're not published until 1820, but the poems that are written um, in the first nine months of 1819 consist of probably a roll call of most of the poems that people are going to recognise when they think about Keats. So the Ode on a Grecian Urn, the Ode to a Nightingale, um, Bright Star, 
Uh, although the actual date of composition of Bright Star is contested, one strong argument says it was written in this period. Um, La Mia, Isabella and the Pot of Basil, La Belle Dame, Summer Sea. Chapman's Homer. Chapman's Homer is an earlier poem. Right, okay. Um, so it's not all of his best known poems, but it's a large quantity it's to autumn. of the poems. To Autumn yeah. is um, written in September of 1819. It's the last of the great odes yeah. that, that are written. And it's during this period that Keats really kind of finds his metier. He, mm. in, in response to what he sees to be the limitations of the poetic experiments of the great romantics, the turn inwards mm. of the Wordsworthian sublime, um, Wordsworth's great epic poem is the prelude. That is the great work that he spends most of his life working on. And it is essentially the epic turned inwards, the, 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 the writing of the poet, the poet's self, as being the great drama of nation building mm. that emerges from out of this age. Mm. Keats is worried about this inward turn, mm. although he is also interested in the inward life. Like Shelley, he sees the world of the imagination as being highly productive of um, not only great art, but through art, productive of a better world, a better way of understanding life. Um, he develops this idea of negative capability in distinguishing between Wordsworth and Shakespeare. The, the, the great thing that he says about Shakespeare's works is that it leads you to a place where there is no certainty in the world. Poetry, great poetry, he says, is not the kind of work, artwork that takes you from one place to another and deposits you there as if you're on a carriage yeah. um, being taken somewhere else. Instead, the analogy he uses is to diving into a pool. One doesn't dive in just to get straight back out again. One dives in to luxuriate, to immerse oneself, to spend time just being in the lake and not necessarily having a purpose. And this is his idea of what great poetry is and does. He identifies in the great poems, formal poetics of the past, particularly with the predominance of the sonnet, a tendency to move too rapidly and speedily from thesis to a kind of argumentative conclusion. The sonnet as a form is a, is a, is a, is a form that operates upon the idea of a switch or a turn, the volta in the classical um, sonnet. And the idea is that we begin by looking at a subject in one way, we then might consider it from a couple of different angles before we go through the turn and come at it from a completely different way that, 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 that offers a kind of a judgmental resolution. Yeah, there's a conclusion to it. There's a yeah. conclusion. Keats experiments vastly with the form of the sonnet. He writes sonnets in the classical Petrarchan form. He looks at the Shakespearean form, but he's never satisfied. I mean, he, he tries to develop his own sonnet forms none of them are particularly satisfying to him. But he finds in the ode 
a new mode of operating in a similar way. The odal structure still consists of turns and shifts, but it is slower it's longer. in its movement. It's longer in its form. And it allows one to present a kind of vision of synthesis that never entirely precludes any of the options that have been um, generated previously. Mm. Now, in the classical form, uh, the Pindaric Ode, um, a Greek tradition, there's the Pindaric form and there's the Horatian form coming out of the Latin. The younger generation of poets tended to work, turn towards the Greek forms when they could, because they saw in Greece um, the ideal of democratic thought. It's the birthplace of democracy, whereas Rome is the birthplace of tyranny, yeah. and particularly imperial tyranny. Horace's yeah. poem, which are generated during the age of Augustus, who yeah. is kind of the arch tyrant, yeah. according to a certain way of viewing what he does. Yeah. So they look at the Greek form, the, the, the choral odes of the classical tradition, which have this form of strophe, antistrophe, and epode. Which, so the choral ode is set to music, and it's, there's a dance which is performed to it. And the dances are first performed one way in the strophe. They're performed in the opposite direction in the antistrophe. And then there's an evolution of the dance into a combination of the two in the final epode. And Keats looks at this idea and decides that this is the form that he's been looking for, to be able to generate a better, more productive way of understanding the world. And so this is the form that he utilises in producing his great odes that, that kind of sees that. So we have, in 1819, we see Keats's formal development reaching a kind of apotheosis. It's the high point of his career. What an extraordinarily amazing six months. Yes. That absolutely. is incredible. I don't think that that's comparable to any other poet in that compressed amount of time. No. I mean, it's an argument that's very often made of Keats. You know? So at the end of 1819, of course, tragically, being a medical man, so during 1817 to 18, he had been nursing his brother through tuberculosis to his death. During the early parts of 1819, Keats starts to notice symptoms. And he knows very well and what they are. He knows very well what they are. And by September of 1819, it is quite clear to him that he has tuberculosis. Mm. He knows that he has. And by and large... 1819 sees the rounding off of his poetic career. He produces this great mm. um, flourishing of poetry in this nine-month period, but really concentrated in the summer and autumn. So, it, you know, kind of begin at the beginning of the year, we have the um, arrival of Isabella, we have the St. Agnes and La Mia all coming out. So quite long works. But during the, the spring and summer and into the early parts of autumn, we see the production of all of the odes, um, we see the two Hyperions, um, which are uh, Keats's attempt at writing a classical epic, mm. um, again abortive and very fragmented and limited in their, their scope, um, as well as several other really strong poems as well kind of emerged during this period. But it's really kind of the last hurrah. 
but it has been noted by many commentators that there are there are no other poets in the English language tradition who had produced such mature work, mm. such strong work, such copious work at such a young age. Mm. And his death at the age of 25 really kind of cuts off mm. what is the most promising poetic career. We never really get to see the work of Keats's full maturity yeah. because he doesn't live to achieve it. No. Um, now, according to some views, that might be a blessing. Um, no. Wordsworth <laughs> wrote his best poems in the early part of his career. He lived on till he was 80, he lived on till 1848. Um, and during the last 40 to 50 years of his life, he wrote copiously mm-hmm. and incredibly tedious. <laughs> um, I have faith in Keats that he wouldn't have been a very old man. <laughs> One hopes, but we will yeah. never know. No, we, we will won't. never know. And had Wordsworth been cut off in his prime as Keats, he might have been, been more interesting. He might have been. <laughs> he might have retained yeah. more of that allure. Um, Shelley, likewise, you know, yeah. dies at the age of 30. And mm. so, and, and even some of the works of his later maturity are certainly less impressive than some of his earlier works. Although, having said that, some of his early works are very mawkish and mm, yeah. um, far less polished than what Keats's were at a similar age. Mm. Um, Byron, at the age of 36, um, he was still writing what is probably his best poem, Don Juan. Mm. Um, but the early cantos of Don Juan are much better than the later cantos of it. Um, and again, there's a kind of sense that he's kind of spent himself a little bit and he's searching for new challenges. Look, he lived he rough. goes off to, get to, to Greece to yeah. fight the War of Independence. He, he lived was, rough, died young. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Poor Keats. Poor Keats. If you had to pick... This is a question that I haven't forewarned you about, so I apologise in advance. Right. If you had to pick the poem that you feel is best indicative of his genius, his best poem, as you as you will, what would you pick? There are probably, so I'll give you two answers to that. I knew you wouldn't give me one. His answer. best poem, <laughs> I think, is To Autumn. Yes. And I'm not alone in, in holding that. I agree. But it's not my favourite What's your favourite? Probably my favourite poem would be Ode to a Nightingale. Okay. Um, Although there are also other ones that are really strongly vying for contention. Um, so one of the last things that he wrote, the poem that he wrote to Fanny Braun about this living hand, mm. um, which is a very gothic poem. Um, it's very short, so I might even yeah. just read it for us. It reads, This living hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, would, if it were cold and in the icy silence of the tomb, so haunt thy days and chill thy dreamy nights, that thou wouldst wish thine own heart dry of blood, so in my veins red life might stream again, and thou be conscience kind. See, here it is. I hold it towards you. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's this really mm. emotional, evocative mm poem about the cognizance of his impending death, but vampire-like and grasping towards the living yeah. um, Fanny Braun, to who it's addressed in a letter, yeah. um, sending an offer for her to give her life in place of his, or, but the reader, of course, being positioned in that, um, you know, you, you feel, you experience that idea of the, 
the hand itself grasping out towards you, seeking to drain the life, the red blood from the veins. And it's um, really strongly evocative, I think, of the really um, strong Gothic sense yeah. um, that Keats has. La Belle Dame Saint Merci. That's a sentimental favourite of mine. And another yeah. favourite of many. And it's mm. a, another real strong favourite of mine as well. Mm. Achieves a very similar kind of um, Gothic mm. flourishing. Um, the Ode to the Nightingale, I think, is my favourite. It's probably the, the, the one of Keats's odes that I knew first and best, and that question of priority always yeah, I know. Um, weighs heavily, I think, in, um, in favour. Um, but I also really strongly admire um, the way in which it really, um, so in such an accomplished way, achieves Keats's um, project of considering the potency of aesthetic art, um, the strength of the aesthetic in the realm of the imagination, as a mechanism for coping with the everyday world, mm. and at the same time as never losing sight of the distinction between the realm of the imagination and the realm of the real is able to generate a sense of the productive nature of art and the way in which the imaginative, the aesthetic, impacts the real world in which everyday people live. And it's that ability to move into a kind of transcendental aesthetic contemplation of the world in order to generate new ways of thinking and bring it back in a manner that can physically, emotionally, materially affect the real world that I think is the strongest achievement. And that's such a complex suite of ideas. Yeah. To to use the poetic form, to use the ode specifically, to to think about those deeply, you know, these are deeply contested kind of philosophical ideas in the, you know, philosophy of aesthetics, <coughs> and he, and it's it's so beautifully encapsulated Absolutely. in that poem. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I, one of the the strong um, philosophical models that is coming out of Germany at the period that a number of people mm. are, are are talking about at the time is the Hegelian dialectic, mm. the idea of um, thesis antithesis and mm. synthesis and it's it's not hard to see the way in which the odal structure that keats is employing is operating in a very similar kind of model well then again connects to what you were saying about you know keats is, is situated in the world yeah. you know in in discussions of philosophy he absolutely would have known all of those you know intellectual traditions indeed and and, and you know he's not just sort of sitting there going, what is beauty? Oh, I think I'll write that down, you know. No. Yeah. And I mean, of course, because as we know, they didn't have television in those days. Well, yeah. So how did they live? How did they live? What did <laughs> they do? They didn't have the internet either. Jeez. Um, but of course, one of the things that they did do um, is that they collected together in groups of people, like-minded They talked to each other. Disgusting. Who sat around <laughs> and talked about this stuff. They had okay. sonnet writing competitions with each other. Um, where they would pick a theme yeah, yeah, yeah. and write different sonnets on the theme. And sometimes those sonnets would find their ways into publication in Hunt's Examiner um, or into volumes of poetry. Well, well, I mean, that's how Frankenstein came to that's be. That's how Frankenstein, yeah. how Ozymandias came to be yeah. as well. Um, yeah. uh, Keats himself wrote a lot of his sonnets 
as part of sonnet writing competitions with other writers. He wrote them very swiftly. Mm. Um, they used to set time limits. You had to come about, up upon the you know oh, the best training as a the, writer. The best sonnet on the theme of um, the diminishment of power um, in ten minutes. And so you would sit and you would just scribble down your best ideas and then you'd read them out and the best ones would be chosen from amongst them. That's quite a creative writing exercise. Quite a creative writing exercise. Sometimes, of course, they would then go off and they'd work on them and they'd work over the material. Um, And it's a really, you know, interesting exercise as well when you read a lot of these sonnets that were written in contest with each other alongside each other. The great poets really stand out, you know, just the natural ear that they have, their facility with an image or a metaphor really stands head and shoulders above the others. But yeah, these ideas that Keats is writing about, I mean, we know about them from the poems. We can read them in the poems themselves. But we also know about them because he writes about them in his letters to Mm. his brother or to his other friends. He talks about the meeting that they had at the Hunts on Hampstead Heath the other night and how enthused he was by the conversation there and it got him thinking about the idea of negative capability, and he writes it all down in his letters. He doesn't ever write an essay in the way that Shelley did, for instance, but we have a lot of prose writing from Keats about his thinking because of the fact that he was a fairly copious letter writer and that he kept in communication with his friends Mm -hmm. about these very subjects that he's writing upon. Yeah, I wonder, you know, that just made me think of, like, the next generation of poets, you know, where we have to trawl through their emails, <laughs> you know. The, the letter is such a beautiful mm. source of, of information about all of these romantic poets because they are writing to each other and often separated. Um, you know, one will have gone to Italy or be in Switzerland, and, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. There's this sort of transnational I mean, you know, communication. So there is, still, there is still communication. Yeah. But it's in a very different medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the new affordances that we have from technology allow conversations of a different order to take place, you know, yeah. in between people in completely... Yeah, I know, but I wonder if they're more ephemeral, actually, now. Perhaps more ephemeral. Yeah. Um, I mean, j- even just the idea of sifting through yeah. all of... I mean, if somebody was sifting through my email correspondence, God help anybody I know. who ever thinks of that would be, idea, don't do it. God, yeah, I know. God, Mine would be the dullest thing, you know. Because... Meeting at 11.30? <laughs> the number of functional yeah. things that we get intermixed with anything else. And I don't think I ever express important ideas in No, <laughs> no. That's what I mean. Like, the, the letter is this, this form in which it wasn't just, you know, hey, how are you going? It was you know, a, a space to work out these ideas yeah. and, you know, a, a way of thinking through problems. Well, see, I find I write very differently in email or on the computer than what I do in, when yeah. I put pen to paper. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it encourages a different type of thinking and writing. Yeah, I mean, I can't even remember the last time I put pen to paper in that way. Yeah. Like, you know, in a, in a kind of thoughtful, not like by, you know... <laughs> Writing a shopping list or... Yeah, I'm out of shampoo, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, I've gone completely off the topic. I love Keats. I think he's great. Mm. What's your favourite? Um, I probably agree with you that Two Autumn is the best. Um, why, why is Two Autumn the best for you? What, what is it um, about Two Autumn? That... I don't know. There's something... Do we have time for it? Should we, should yeah, we read you, it? Yeah, you read it. I used to be able to recite this, folks, but... Oh wow! I have never been able to. <laughs> I've never been able to recite. I just think it's it's the it's the piece that I don't know has the most kind of 
the lines that stick out in your head. It's the it's the one that I don't know. I associate this with kids the most. When I think of kids, I think of this. Anyway, here, here we have it. Two autumn it's, it's relatively short. It is short. Audience. Yes. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatches run, to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease, for summer has all brimmed their canny cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft-lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with the fumes of poppies, while thy hook spares the next swathe and all its twined flowers. And sometimes like a gleamer thou dost keep steady thy laden head across a brook, or by a cider press with patient look, Thou watchest the last oozings, hours by hours. Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too. While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue, then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows, borne aloft or sinking as the light wind lives or dies and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly-born. Hedge crickets sing, and now with treble soft the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. Yeah, that is the poem that I think about when I think about Keats. It's yeah. so it's it's so densely imagistic, it's just so beautiful, I can see it, I can feel it, it just sort of operates in the senses. So I mean critically, yeah. the reason why people argue mm. this is Keats's great poem is because of all, there, there are different reasons depending on mm. the kind of lens you bring to it and part of it is because one critical tradition decided it was the best mm. and nobody wants to disagree that it's the best yeah, yeah. so therefore they have to find excuses this about why, why it's, it's the, the best. best. Yeah. Um, but in terms of if you're thinking formally about mm. that odal structure, you can mm. see, first of all, we begin with the idea of nature mm. in its autumnal aspect, described in um, the context of a rural working garden where you have the cottage producing the apples, you have the idea of the bees producing work, it's productive, it's nature, um, at the time of harvest, and so therefore has great significance. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of also doing its own thing mm. in that rural aspect. The second stanza, which begins with the question, who has not seen the often midnight store, focuses far more. It takes that same rural view, but focuses on humanised yeah. figures the human operating within that scenario mm. and the way in which that impacts human life. But then we move to the epode in the third stanza, the resolution, the new movement, which instead focuses on the songs of nature itself and writes the human element out. And so it becomes the transcendental writing of the poet out of the, the, the poem and writing instead purely directly into nature. And that's mm. one way in which it's it's kind of 
championed as being this ideal, perfect ode. Yeah. It is the best ode because it achieves what the ode tries to do most effectively. When McGann comes to it later, mm. um, in the late 70s, early 80s, he instead reads it in a far more political sense um, and he begins the process of reading the poem in, in terms of politics, looking for different kinds of influence, whether from Greek or Roman traditions, whether from Shakespeare, Shakespeare or Chatterton. Yeah. Um, we have people who write in response to these traditions. They quibble about you know, where particular images come from and what the significance of that is. They look at words like the conspiring with him how to load and bless yeah. in that first stanza as being, Keats, being evidence of Keats thinking about um, the paranoid political environment that was generated in 1819. This is the year of Peterloo. Yeah. Um, this is September, so it's kind of therefore Keats's response to the events that give rise to Peterloo. And so therefore it becomes at the same time as being the archetypal perfect poem that writes poet out of context, finding ways in which the context comes back in and so there's great significance given to the clammy cells of the bees being a loaded term in this this, this um, discourse of political conspiracy. Yeah. It's also a very potent um, poem in the realm of eco-critical approaches yeah. to Keats, which is also another strong movement, where instead it becomes a poem about the weather and about the way in which the significance of the summer and autumn of 1819, which was the first good harvest, Yeah after years of very bad ones following the year without a summer in 1816. Yeah. And so it becomes a mechanism for interrogating the way in which people are thinking about the relationship between the human world and the environment and the importance of the environment and human life. So, I mean, for those reasons, because you can approach, as you can with any work, work you can approach this poem from so many conceptual lenses yeah. and make really fruitful for that, I think. Yeah. interesting arguments yeah. about it. It kind of becomes that perfect poem. And then it is just so beautifully rich. And it's just so, emotion. yeah. When I when I hear it, I'm just like, oh, mm. imagine being this good. <laughs> you know? It's just good. Yeah, it is, <laughs> it is just good. Um, I also have a really soft spot for, as I said, LaBelle Dance and Smithy and um, the Eve of St. Agnes. Yeah. I love the Eve of St. Agnes. Yeah, I do too. I like all the girl poems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> any, any poem with a woman in it, I'm like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are also, you know, the, the, the other Keats that quite often gets mm. forgotten is the Keats, the rival risque Keats, so the Keats of Give Me Women, Wine and Song, mm. or... Um, the, the Keats of Meg Merrilies, which is, um, you know, a, a song about a, a gypsy lady. It's not really a, a Wordsworthian gypsy mm. figure, though. It's old Meg, Mer old Meg, she was a gypsy and lived upon the moor. Her bed was in the brown heath turf and her house was out of doors. Her apples were swamp blackberries, her currants pod the broom. Her wine was dew with wild white rose, her book a churchyard tomb. Her brothers were the craggy hills, her sisters larch and trees. Alone with her great family, she lived as she did please. No breakfast had she many a morn, no dinner many a noon. Instead of supper, she would stare full hard against the moon. But every morn of woodbine fresh, she made her gardening. And every night, the dark glen yew she wove and would sing. And with her fingers old and brown, she plaited mats of rushes and gave them to the cottagers she met amongst the bushes. Old Meg was brave as Margaret Queen and tall as Amazon. An old red blanket cloak she wore, a chip hat had she on. 
God rest her aged bones somewhere. She died full long ago. I mean, it's Wordsworth, but it's Wordsworth in a far more celebratory mood. The Wordsworthian real. Yeah. Uh, but you don't associate Keats with poetry like that. No. Like it's. I mean, I don't. I don't think I ever read that poem. Yeah. Or lines like from Mermaid Tavern, which yeah, is celebrating yeah. a, a pub that yeah. he loves to go to. You know, there you are. You don't think of. Yeah, that's it's out of step with his like I'm dying artistically. Yes. You know, ethereally and prettily and, you know, and he lies one whose name is written yeah. water. And, and of course people stuff, also yeah. strongly romanticise the relationship between Keats and Fanny Braun. Yes. And it is a very film. romantic story and hence the film. But mm-hmm. what often gets written out of that conversation is the fact that Keats actually had his eye on a number of different women throughout <laughs> most of the period and a large part of his life was spent trying to work out where his affections actually lay. But it's not very romantic. And so many of the romantic poems that poems were originally ascribed to being to Fanny, there's now a lot more speculation about whether it is actually to Fanny or whether it's written about some other women that he was interested in. Don't don't shatter my <laughs> illusions, Jeffrey. Now I'm all disappointed. Oh well, sorry, that's part of my job. <laughs> I know shattering mythology. <laughs> In my head, he is the the perfect kind of romantic figure. Mm. But I do, yes, thank you for I mean, you know, again, I think it's a, a we do damage yes. if we overly. Yes. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, um, I don't think of his poetry in that way, but no. I think of him in that way. So, yeah. yes, thank you for an excellent reminder that mythologies are there to be shattered. Um, we have talked for over an hour, so I'm going to let you go now. Um, thank you so much. That was amazing. My pleasure, Steph. I always love to come and have a chat, chat about, about my peeps. Your peeps, yes. <laughs> well, you have many more. Yes. So we will get you back for Lovely. more. I Fantastic. think a, I think a Byron one is in order. I think so. I think yeah. All right. Yeah. I think. Well, we'll I'll take it. Up. I think we'll, we should also do something about poetic responses to uh, people. Yes, we should. Okay, let's do that. All right. Now that we have figured out our schedule <laughs> for the rest of the year, um, thank you so much, Jeff. Once again. And um, if you've got any questions, comments, suggestions, um, you can go to fromthelighthouse.org and send us a line. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at MQEnglish. And if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be very, very helpful. Only five-star reviews, of course. Um, we don't want one of those, you know, excoriating reviews like Paul Keats had. You might you might drive us into an early grave. <laughs> anyway. I am very sensitive. Yes. We're very sensitive flowers. Don't hurt us. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jeff, once again, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks, Jeff. Bye.